This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Thompson, welcome to Better Reading. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real treat. Now, Kate is an award-winning author, journalist and ghostwriter who has worked for over two decades in the UK publishing industry. She has written fiction and non-fiction, including three Sunday Times bestsellers. A number of Kate's novels are set in London during the Second World War, including her most recent novel, The Little Wartime Library. She tells the fascinating true story of an underground library in London during the war. Now, I'm astounded that our paths have never crossed, that we've never spoken before. Me too, Cheryl. I know. And, and as I was telling you before we were chatting that I used to work at That's Life magazine out in Australia and I feel, you know, bereft that I don't live there anymore. It was the happiest time of my life. So I'm surprised our plans have never crossed. Yeah. Tell me how you got to Australia. <laughs> Why was I there? Well, I did the usual thing, the gap year. I was in my early 20s and I went out there and, and I had been a journalist before and I was very lucky to land a job on That's Life magazine out there absolutely loved it I met some of the most interesting people I got flown around the country to interview people and it's always the case I met a man fell in love thought it was the one came back to England promptly broke up with him and then thought damn why didn't I stay in Australia (laughs) so I always I have very warm memories of you know my times over there especially in Sydney and why is it that we haven't spoken before if you've written 10 what, how many books was it? Ten? Well, so this is my tenth novel. And yeah. interestingly enough, this is the first book I have written that has been picked up internationally. So it's being published or is published now in Australia. It's coming out next year in Australia and Canada. It's just been picked up by France and Finland and Italy. And I think it's because there's something to do with libraries. And I think the love of libraries is international. It transcends countries. So whereas before I focused quite specifically on East London, now my little wartime library, this true, secret, wonderful, magic little library, I think it seems to have captured people's imaginations. And that's because we all are shaped by the libraries that we visited as children, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a nostalgia and a warmth and a love for libraries that I'm already beginning to see. You know, people, the book's been out less than a week and I'm getting emails from people saying, this reminds me of reading Enid Blyton in my childhood library. And it sort of wraps you in that warmth of glow of nostalgia, I think. What do you think, Sharon? Well, I, firstly, I've got, a, I've got an opinion about libraries because my career started in a library. Uh-huh. I was a library okay. assistant for many years I in Maricol Library. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and in actual That's fact, you. I'm in San Francisco spending time with a friend who I met at Maryville Library all those uh-huh, years ago. Uh-huh. So, um, and he and I have become really good friends. But anyway, I my view on libraries is they are an equaliser in a community. 
You don't have to have Mm. money. You can be rich or poor. Everybody has the same access to libraries. And I have always valued what libraries do. I mean, way before I even worked in a library, because think about it, you know, books can be quite expensive. Yeah. Books can be expensive for some people, but also too, they're community hubs. Um, I'm sure they're like that in London, but they are here too. And also they're a, a connection point. Libraries are a connection point. And when you're looking at the little wartime library, when do people need the most connection? When they're in, when they're frightened, when they're scared. And also, too, I think, you know, libraries have pivoted so well over the years. Anyway, don't get me started on libraries because I love them. (laughs) I love them. I can tell, and and the fashion shines through, and you're you're right. And as a little aside, as part of my research, I've set myself this goal of interviewing 100 librarians. So I'll have to introduce you. You'll have to repay the favour. And the biggest thing, I'm up to about 60 interviews now, 40 to go. The biggest thing I've realised is that librarians are frontline workers. You know, they're used to the mentally ill and the disenfranchised and the vulnerable and the lonely. And often the only person someone might see all day is a librarian. So, and they have the emotional intelligence to navigate that landscape. It's such a multifaceted role, which Mm -hmm. made me think, actually, librarians are more than people that just stamp and issue books. They're social workers, counsellors, confidants, friends. They are... You know, they contain multitudes, I think, and they have well, this wonderful... sorry to interrupt, but I, I really so agree with you. I was in a library just pre-COVID in a library in Sydney, in a public library, and, you know, they do magnificent jobs. But what I noticed in the space, that there were a whole lot of school children, high school children, studying for yeah. their end-of-year exams. I noticed yeah. a whole lot of men congregating in the lounge area, just, I think, as a connection point. Not one of them had a book in their hand, but they had a newspaper. I noticed okay. a whole a lot of women, you know, they're in a book club, obviously, sitting around a round table. And all of these different groups of people with different needs were gathering in the one spot. And where else can they gather like that but in a library? Because a library is such a unique place. It's the only place that you can go from cradle to grave mm-hmm. that is free. You know, you don't have to part with a penny to travel the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and it accesses, it offers you free, trusted information, which in a conspiracy theory age is more valuable than ever. Mm-hmm. So the more I've, I've sort of immersed myself in the world of librarians, the more I see that libraries are our birthright and our inheritance or as one librarian put it to me, they're our greatest ever invention. Mm-hmm. And I'm really passionate about promoting libraries because I see, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I see since COVID, they are, as one librarian put it to me, they're low-hanging fruit. They're very easy to pick off and close, but there is almost no money saved when you close a library. But you begin to see it very quickly in the community where the library once was in terms of crime, poverty, addiction, homelessness. You know, the library is a glue that holds a community together. So don't get me started on libraries. I could I could fill Same. very easily an hour. <laughs> yeah, just one last <laughs> note on libraries because I am yeah. travelling at the moment. Also, anywhere in the world you can walk into a library yeah, and you can feel right. at home. Yeah, It's the great equaliser. And I think going back to your original question, why have I not heard of you, it's because I think I have been surprised by the pickup this book has because it speaks to our international love of libraries and every country in the world to the best of my knowledge has a library because they're our greatest invention Mm. so we must work you know we must treasure them we must use them or lose them is my feeling towards libraries and also you know and and coming back to your book you know libraries are often the last people standing libraries and librarians in times of adversity they're there yeah. absolutely and and I was fascinated one of the things I learned researching this book is is the rich almost like the democratization that, that happened during the second world war because 
prior to the war in England, I don't know what it was like in Australia, people tended to go to subscription libraries that were found in Boots Chemist or a Tupney library, which is like a, often a little working class sort of corner shop. Library, libraries, public municipal libraries tended to be viewed as quite austere, silent, forbidding places. But the war, and in particular the Blitz, changed the face of librarianship. Librarians realised that they had an opportunity here to embed themselves in the local fabric. And so because of the scarcity of books and paper rationing, people started to flock to the library. And and we saw this massive boom in libraries. And librarians acted with agility and creativity. So as as I wrote about in the Little Wartime Library, they... You know, when, when Bethnal Green Library was bombed, the two librarians there saw an opportunity for what they called a pioneering social experiment. And they took 4,000 volumes um, that they could salvage from the bombed library, took them 78 feet down below ground and built from scratch a library over the tracks of the westbound tunnel of the central line. Um, and they worked on the premise that if people couldn't come to the books, they would take books to the people. And I love that. It just captured my imagination and I first found out about it, actually, I was interviewing this wonderful lady called Pat Spicer, who's 92, and she was telling me about how during the Blitz she used to sleep underground at Bethnal Green Library. And I said to her, oh, I bet that was horrible, dark and damp. And she said, oh, no. She said, I used to go to the library and I borrow Millie Molly Mandy. She goes, then I go to the theatre and I took tap dancing lessons and I listened to a Russian opera singer. And I was like, you did what? <laughs> she said, then, you know, there was a creche down there, a doctor's quarters, a cafe. This was a, a thriving, vibrant, subterranean community. So that absolutely blew me away when she told me about an underground library. And and she said to me, you know, I'll never forget it, Kate. She said, it sparked a lifelong love of reading. And I thought, what's more wonderful than that, really? So that was where the idea came from. And and as I began to research it more, I saw that Bethnal Green Library, Underground Library, was not alone. There was lots of little pop-up, if you like, for want of a better word, libraries flourishing all over the country. You know, libraries popped up in hospitals, allotments, troop ships. London launched its first mobile library halfway through the Blitz, um, offering a library to your door. They um, At the unveiling of the ceremony, it was this wonderful old van and they converted it with polished mahogany shelves and put 4,000 volumes. And this, I love the idea of this library racing through the cratered streets to take libraries and books to bomb shelters, to ARP units, to barrage balloon units. And at its unveiling, the mayor actually said that people without books are like houses without windows. Uh, it really struck me what a wonderful analogy that was and how right it was. So, yeah, we saw this massive revolution of, of library usage during the Second World War. And interestingly enough, sorry, stop me if I'm going on, I, but I could wax lyrical about libraries for, for hours. But interestingly enough, what we saw as well, that there was this whole new generation of working class women that began to visit a library that their parents never used to. So we saw this whole new yeah, I suppose a new generation of people come to the library because these new women that were out of domestic drudgery, they'd gone into the workplaces, they were newly enfranchised, they had money and time. And they found by flocking to the library that they found that there was solace and sanctuary and the diversion that only a really good story can bring. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and the more I began to research it, the more I began to see the parallels between the way that librarians were acting in the COVID era And we as readers, the lonely churn of our own thoughts is the best way I can put it, you know, with uncertainty all around us. When will the pandemic end? When will I be able to see my loved ones again? Exactly the same thing was happening during the Second World War with the Blitz and, you know, and the bombs and 
the evacuation of Dunkirk, every time there was a trigger point, um, people flocked to the library. It brings back a memory for me. So my parents um, are Lebanese and I know the audience, our listeners know that because I talk about that a lot and I'm Lebanese-Australian. But one of my first library memories, and I think, you know, this is important for a lot of people that are immigrants in the country, one of my first memories is going to Glebe Library and looking at the books. And I can't remember if my mother took us there or my sister took us there. But anyway, I can even smell that. That, I can smell that library right now yeah. talking to you, what, right? What does it smell like? Can you describe it? It smells like that, that smell of books and comfort and carpet and there was always plush something on the floor. But do yeah. you know that when I started school I couldn't read because, you know, my parents, we didn't go to preschool or anything like that and we were immigrants, but I felt that I could read because I was going to the library regularly and looking at picture books. So maybe now I'm just thinking maybe I was making up my own stories. I think you were. You were library educated. I was library educated. (laughs) How valuable is that for people that really are trying to make their way in a community? Absolutely, absolutely. It speaks to all of us, doesn't it? I think, like you say, it's the great leveller in a sense. And and I wrote about this in the book, the sense that all these children used to flock to the library and many of them were were, were completely uneducated. Their schools were shut because they were being bombed. They had nowhere else to go. Quite often they couldn't read. So that library gave them that focal point. It was a school in the absence of a school. Mm. And I just, I love the thought of this underground library. And it also made me think, I wonder when you're reading underground, it's a different sensory experience, isn't it? If Mm. all the other senses are cut out, does it make does it sharpen the imagination? Does it make the act of reading more more personal somehow? I often wonder that. Like I, I need to, as research, shut myself underground and read and see how it must have felt. <laughs> because I often feel that just with place, a sense of place. Like if I be, read a book in San Francisco, it does feel different to reading a book in Sydney. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you a question? Did what you read during COVID change? Did you find yourself drawn to other genres? Mm. So I've talked about this quite a lot and I also interviewed a series of Australian writers about reading, well, how COVID has impacted their life, mainly through reading. I interviewed Peter Carey, I interviewed Anna Fonda. It was interesting, Peter Carey and I were similar. I was in the first lockdown, I was so stressed and so worried about the future that I, and distracted because you were, it was like that 24 hours, that CNN of news, you know, constantly distracted and you would have been the same. I could not concentrate. Like I couldn't, I wasn't in that first quarter, if you like, connecting with fiction at all, but I took to short stories. So it did change. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I needed something short to dip in and out. Now, my readers, our community, they took to, I mean, I think not just our community, I think a large number of people took to reading and some took to writing as well. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. because we all need a good diversion. And and what is reading but a wonderful escape? A librarian Mm -hmm. said to me, you know, a book is like a time machine. It gives you wings. It transports you somewhere when you can't physically go there. And I um, I came across this wonderful survey, which was conducted by the Mass Observation Society, which is that great barometer of public opinion. Yeah. And they surveyed 10,000 people in 1942. And some of the comments that people said, like one woman said, reading is like a drug to me. I read much more than in peacetime. Another lady said, I definitely read more since the war. I, I take two days to read a book. And the last comment was, I like light reading, something to occupy my mind so that I can read and knit at the same time. 
During the Blitz, if I knitted, I found myself listening to gunfire and bombs. While if I got interested in a good book, it would take my mind away and I couldn't hear the bombs. And I just thought that was wonderful. I thought that the transportative, almost medicinal effect of books was the same in wartime as it is to us today. And I think apart from the comment and bombs, you couldn't separate those comments between, you know, the pandemic and the Second World War, could you? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Absolutely. Our community grew exponentially during COVID. A lot really? of people came and found us, yeah. yeah. Um, talk yeah. to me about how you're right, well, the trajectory of your career, but where it all started and how it all started. Okay, well, I was a journalist, firstly. I didn't come out of school with particularly good qualifications. My poor mum cried when I got my GCSE results through. But I did find a home in journalism and newspapers. I love going out. I love listening to stories. I think women, particularly working class women, have the most interesting stories to tell. You know, I go out and people say to me, oh, I'm only ordinary. And then you find out they're nothing but ordinary. They're extraordinary and they've lived through remarkable history. I think... You know, quite often women, we don't instigate history, but we're forced to react to it. So history, when viewed through the average woman's eyes, takes the true temperature of the times. It's history up close and personal. So I found this love through journalism of sitting and listening to women's stories and that lovely unfiltered gush of social history that you get. But I never really had the confidence to write a book because I wasn't degree educated. I didn't think I could do that. I couldn't write a long form book. But then through getting into, uh, after I worked as a journalist for many years, and then I was made redundant when I was pregnant with my second son. I thought, Christ, what am I going to do? I've, you know, I've got to pay the bills. So I, by luck, got into ghostwriting, so writing other people's memoirs. And I'd written five of How them. How did you my- get into that? So I, a friend of mine was a ghostwriter, and she said, look, come on, you can sit and listen to people's stories. You can find stories and you can write them. So I actually interviewed, I, I ghostwrote the memoirs of a lady called Molly Brown, who was the oldest ever author to hit the Sunday Times number one spot. She was a scullery maid in service between the wars. And it was at the time of Downton Abbey and there was this tremendous thirst for domestic service stories. Uh, So I sat with this wonderful woman who told me all her secrets of the scullery. She was a real filthy woman. She had a filthy sense of humour, was always joking about the butlers and she'd had a wonderful life and it was a real treat to write her book. But what it made me realise, actually, and and why I became so passionate about the Second World War is I realised that for women, the effect on World War II and the effect on their lives, it was really a springboard out of drudgery for Molly Molly Brown. Because when the war started, she was forced to leave her life as a scullery maid and she joined the services and she 
travelled the world and she married an officer and, and she was catapulted out of this life of drudgery. And I thought, how fascinating. I never knew that the world, that the war had this incredible effect on women's lives. And so that was the springboard for me. Once I'd written Molly's book, my agent said, come on, you can write your own book. And I didn't really believe it, but I did it anyway. Um, I became passionate about East End history and it went from there. And so 10 books on, I'm, I'm still can't quite believe it, <laughs> if I'm honest. I, I want to ask you a question about <laughs> ghostwriting. I think it's fascinating and I think ghostwriters yeah. are really clever because it's not just writing. It's very often becoming that person, becoming that person's yeah. voice. Absolutely, because you have to really work hard not to imprint your voice over theirs. Mm. And by and large, that means listening, you know, really listening, what I call active listening. So when I sit down and somebody begins to speak, you, if there's a silence, I learned that you don't fill it. You sit and you listen and the stories will come. They always, they're always there. And I guess you just have to tune your ear and be sensitive to what it is that this woman wants to tell you. You know, this woman, Molly Brown, that I interviewed, she was 99 by the time I sat down with her and she'd lived a life that you could fill five books with. You know, she was born um, at the, when the First World War was still going on. She was, a, she was like a living library. She was a book. And it, and it was just an, an enormous privilege and a treat to sit with this woman. Mm. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I had a beautiful recent experience with um, Isabella Alonde. She's 80 this year. Anyway, she's in, she lives in San Francisco, so I went to see her and I recorded a podcast with her. She's so generous and lovely. And we had a wonderful conversation. But once we finished the podcast, well, officially kind of stopped talking, she continued to talk because I stopped talking. Right. And uh, that last bit was absolute yeah. magic. Yeah, the bit afterwards. Yeah, that often I find is the case when I go out and do interviews with people. So much of communication is nonverbal. It's the way that people are sitting, the mannerisms, you know, the photos on their wall. Quite often it's only in the last five minutes of an interview that I'll give you an example. I was with this wonderful old woman in East London in Poplar where Call the Midwife was set. Mm. And I went into this immaculate lounge. I mean, you could have eaten your dinner off the floor. You know, these women talk about house proud, mm. you know, and all these photos of grandchildren on the walls. And she told me about the poverty that typical sort of call the midwife era, living in those tight knit cobbled streets and surviving the blitz and her pride in her children. And it was only in the last five minutes of the conversation that she confided in me that she had been subjected to the most dreadful domestic violence. And, you know, she had never, there was no women's refuges or hostels that she could have gone to. You know, she had a large family. There was nowhere she, she was trapped in a cycle of poverty and violence. And once she started talking to me, she couldn't stop because she had held it in for all those years. And when you hear something like that, it always sets the hairs on the back of my neck up. And it's a, you realize what a privilege it is and that all these locked down memories suddenly bubble forth. And, and I think that comes because we all want the opportunity to share our stories and to be heard. Mm-hmm. I think in this age of where we've all got voices on social media, actually, we, we still don't feel heard. Mm-hmm. With this book, it's, you know, it's based on a true story, right? But you've yeah. written and yeah. the book is fiction, of course. Did you do that with all your, have you done that with all your books or this is? Yeah, because true different. life is this is more based on true life. I mean, I always say true life is more ordinary and more mm-hmm. extraordinary than anything that you can make up. 
Mm. In fact, that was something that my old editor at That's Life Sydney used to say, true life is extraordinary. Why embellish Mm. it? So everything about the little wartime library and those incredible underground facilities and the village community like atmosphere down there is all true. And and I interviewed lots of people right down to a man who's now in his 90s who used to sell jacket potatoes down the tunnels to earn extra money to a lady called Minxie, who with her three sisters, they used to sing down there because of the curved tunnel roof. They said it, it gave it a wonderful kind of um, acoustics. And so they would sing all three of them down there and harmonize. And she said, you know, we were Bethel Green's answer to the Andrews sisters. So I've got them in there. There was a formidable uh, shelter warden by the name of Mrs Chumley who had served in the first war and she kept order down there and everybody said, my God, she, you know, she had a voice like a sergeant major and if she told you to shift it, you've moved. So she makes a sort of cameo appearance. But I've got this incredible ready-made cast of wonderful, garrulous, irreverent, subversive, amazing characters. So you do the research yeah, about how um, a book comes about. So you do, uh, how long do you research for? What, what Have you got a pattern that you're in now in terms of writing fiction? Yeah, so I tend to kind of come up with, uh, you know, you find the nugget of the idea, you go out and do some cursory research, then you put it together and your publisher says yes or no, and in this case it was yes. Then that's the balance, and every author will tell you this is the struggle. Then how much time do you spend researching versus writing? And I'm a great procrastinator. And I love the research. I love going out and interviewing people. I'm less good at sticking my bum down in the seat and actually committing words to paper. But of course, there's the deadline looming. So at some point you have to say, okay, enough research. Now I'm going to sit down and write it. So I just tend to, I don't have a formula. I I just tend to do about, I don't know, three months of research, say. Then I get panicked. I think, okay, deadline looming. Get down, start committing this story to paper and feeling your way into the story and your characters. And then I go out on ad hoc you know, basis and do more research as and when. But I think, and I'm sure other authors will tell you this, it's such a fine line between doing the research and then just laying it on with a heavy hand because, you know, you've heard this amazing story of you sat for five hours in the archive and God damn it, you're going to put it all in there. Um, I've learned that less is more, a lighter touch is required. Mm. But also to what I've learned just from speaking to authors who write um, historical fiction is that it has to be authentic too. Like your research has to be so spot on because the reader picks it up. Oh, don't they just, I really love picking up anachronisms. Mm. Um, So I have quite a raft of people that I rely on who will do early reads for me and pick out those anachronisms. Because if you're, you know, there and suddenly somebody said, I don't know, okay, during the Mm. Second World War, it's so jarring. It takes you out of that time and place. I want people to be 78 feet below ground at Bethnal Green Underground Library. I don't want them to snap them out and suddenly think, oh, you know, it's got to be authentic and it's got to be meticulous. And that's the hard part, I think, of writing historical fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really selling them on the idea that you are there and that this is real. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the the best ways I find with that, I don't know if other authors have said this to you, Cheryl, is about, you know, that visceral element of all the senses. So I often Mm. try to imagine what those tunnels must have smelt like, mm. what they, you know, what they must have felt like on the walls, what it all sounded like, echoey underground and mm. the smell of, you know, carbolic. We're running out of time, but I just want to go back to the interviewing of the 100 librarians. What's that project for? Well, that's just for me, really. Um, so <laughs> when, 
I told you I like research. <laughs> no, I tell you, I tell you what is, I tell you what it is, Brian. So when I was in the archives and I discovered the Bethel Green Library opened in 1922, beautiful old Carnegie Library opened in the what amazingly was the male wing of a former lunatic asylum, which only closed two years previously. So then I thought, okay, so the, the library opened in 1922. Hang on, when my book comes out, it's going to be its centenary, 100 years old. So I thought, well, that's worth celebrating. I'm going to interview 100 library workers to celebrate 100 years of Bethel Green Library. Oh, so that was wonderful. Yeah, but actually in doing so, it's been really wonderful because I have heard some incredible stories. Mm. Um, I've interviewed librarians from prisons, from schools, mm. from poetry libraries to Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. And when the paperback comes out in September, I will write an article at the back of the book, um, really trying to sum up, if I can, some of the best of those interviews. But they're all amazing. Mm, I can um, yeah, I've got such respect for library workers now. We're out of time, Kate. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, such a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed oh, it very much. You're so welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.